The U.S. and South Korea issued a warning today to deter North Korea's military escalation. President Biden says the U.S. will defend South Korea, and a nuclear attack against the U.S. or its allies will result in the end of whatever regime conducted the attack. Today is Wednesday, April 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The new agreement and the message to Pyongyang coming up. Also, gun safety advocates are hailing a new ban on assault-style weapons in Washington state. Unfortunately, in this environment, there's there's no federal help coming in terms of regulating these deadly weapons. And so the responsibility falls to the states to do what they can. Ten states have now passed such laws. We look back at the deadliest accident in the history of the garment industry ten years ago and the changing nature of transgender rights through the generations. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden and his South Korean counterpart are vowing to respond swiftly and decisively in the event of a North Korean nuclear attack. That was one of the topics they discussed at the White House, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The talks focused on everything from trade and technology to Russia's war in Ukraine. President Biden is promising to give South Korea more insight into U.S. contingency planning when it comes to North Korea's nuclear capabilities, and he says U.S. nuclear submarines will visit South Korea. A nuclear attack by North Korea against the United States or its allies or partisans uh, our partners is unacceptable and will result in the end of whatever regime were to take such an action. The U.S. has offered to hold talks with North Korea, but Pyongyang has not shown any interest. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. During his joint press conference with the president of South Korea today, President Biden addressed questions about his bid for re-election, which sets up a potential rematch with former President Donald Trump. Here's NPR's Windsor Johnston. Speaking outside of the White House, President Biden was asked whether he's the only candidate who could beat back a potential challenge from former President Donald Trump, should Trump secure the Republican nomination in 2024. I may not be the only one, but uh, uh, I know him well and I know the danger he presents to our democracy. And we've been down this road before. In announcing his re-election bid on Tuesday, Biden pitched himself as the best Democrat to prevent Trump from reclaiming the White House. In a video that opened with images of the January 6th insurrection, Biden pledged to protect the bedrock freedoms of Americans from what he calls extremists linked to Trump. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A columnist who accuses Trump of raping her and then lying about it has provided graphic testimony about her alleged encounter with the real estate mogul in the mid-1990s. At the time, E. Jean Carroll was 52, Trump was 49. NPR's Ilya Merritt supports Carroll told a Manhattan federal courtroom today she remembers being ushered into a dressing room, shoved against a wall, and then attempting to push back as she was sexually assaulted. Her voice broke as she recounted feeling stupid to have allowed it to happen, feeling that she walked right into this terrible situation and uh, she said she's been berating herself for it ever since. She also said she's been unable to have a sexual or romantic relationship with a man at any point since then. Trump says it never happened. Shortly before today's testimony began, Trump went on Truth Social to discredit Carol's allegations against him. The judge presiding over the civil trial warned that Trump could be tampering with a new source of liability if he continues. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 228 points. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts' highest court has issued a ruling that could affect tens of thousands of drunk driving cases. The Supreme Judicial Court found that the cases were compromised by problems with the breathalyzer machine. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports the ruling means people who are convicted can try to get the verdicts dismissed. The SJC ruled that because the State Office of Alcohol Testing concealed problems with the breathalyzer machine, an estimated 27,000 cases were based on faulty evidence. Criminal defense attorney Murat Erkan argued the case before the high court. We have a system in place where we have objective, courageous judges who are willing to sort of correct these wrongs when they occur. So um, it's a good day for justice in, in Massachusetts. The justices said Erkan's client can now seek to to dismiss the charges against her, the ruling affects most breathalyzer testing done in Massachusetts between 2011 and 2019. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The cost of flood damage to the MBTA caused by sea level rise has doubled in the last 15 years. That's according to a new study from MIT. Co-author Michael Martello says by 2030, the flooding risk to the system and associated cost is expected to double again if nothing's done going from about $24 million uh, present day to about, I believe in our study, we're saying about $60 million of damage roughly by the end of the decade. And so that's how much damage we expect per year to the MBTA um, in the year 2030. The MBTA already has deployable flood barriers it can put in place to protect places such as the aquarium station near Boston Harbor. A former Harvard professor who lied to the government about his ties to China will spend two years on supervised release. That's the sentence a judge set today for Charles Lieber. Lieber was part of a program that recruited high-level scientists to work with Chinese universities. He was convicted in 2021 on charges related to lying to the government and tax fraud. The judge today also ordered him to pay $50,000 in fines. Pretty beautiful afternoon going there. Some clouds moving in tonight. Overnight lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be mostly cloudy. Maybe some showers in the afternoon, still in the mid-50s. Could see some sunshine move in again on Friday in the mid-50s once again. 53 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Alyssa Block in Washington. LGBTQ legal advocates were in court in Missouri today. They're suing to stop that state's new ban on transgender health care that would affect all ages. The ban, imposed by Missouri's attorney general, is set to take effect tomorrow. Missouri is one of more than a dozen Republican-led states that have enacted laws or policies to restrict gender-affirming care, such as puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones. We're going to hear now the perspective of trans people from different generations talking about this current political climate and their hopes or fears about the future. My name is Parker Andrews. I'm 16 years old. Parker is a high school sophomore in St. Louis, Missouri. He started his medical transition two years ago. Hi, I'm Caleb Popson Garcia. I'm from Tallahassee, Florida. Caleb is 21, about to graduate from Florida State. He started his transition at age 12. And Deborah Hopkins, she's 66, a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello, everyone. It's good to meet all of you. <laughs> Hopkins recalls that when she started her transition in the 1980s, it was a very different time. 
It really was. In fact, the internet still was nowhere near what it is today in terms of resourceful information. And so I was actually traveling blindly for much of that time. Uh, started out taking illegal hormones out of Canada. We didn't know what kind of medication we were getting out of Canada, but we were so desperate to begin that transition. Um, you know, we were so young and naive. Caleb, let me turn to you there in Florida. You you started medically transitioning um, with puberty blockers when you were 12. When you listen to Deborah talk about how things were back in her day, how does that strike you? It's such a different time. Yeah, I mean, incredibly different. And I know the first thought I had was, I'm so relieved that we live in a more accepting world right now. We live in a world that I can go to a doctor who prescribes me safe hormones I can go to a CVS or a Walgreens and I'll pick up safe hormones. And then the second thought that hit me was, is this going to be a reality eventually in the South that we'll need to go back to the way it was to black market in order to get hormones if they're being blocked by legislation? So I'm relieved that we are where we are right now, but a little worried that the past might become the future. Parker Andrews, uh, let me bring you in now there in Missouri. You're you're 16. You're part of a trans generation that's highly visible, very vocal. Um, There's a higher percentage of your age group that identifies as non-binary or trans. Um, But at the same time, you're transitioning at a time when lots of states are passing laws or have policies that will ban gender-affirming care or otherwise limit trans rights, including there where you live in Missouri. How does all that affect you? It is a, a very scary time to be a trans person, especially just thinking about a lot of the ways that these bills are worded about protecting kids. But I often feel quite the opposite is true, especially when it comes to kids who are in the midst of transitioning, such as myself, because with centers being shut down and bills being passed that restrict or stop hormone replacement therapy entirely, as you were saying, where like people have to resort to hormones that aren't either safely administered, hormones where they're not entirely sure where they're from. Um, And then also there's just health risk with if you're unable to get any hormones at all, stopping hormones entirely without any medical intervention or oversight from a doctor that can also have adverse health effects. You know, as I listen to this generation and what's going on in government with bills that are out there, I'm concerned. I'm really concerned. I'm angry, actually, because I'm seeing them being pulled back into the time as I was growing up. And that's frightening. Caleb, you are about to graduate from Florida State. And I wonder, looking forward, if you see a place for yourself in Florida, is Florida where you want to be, given the legislation in the state, given the political climate? Yeah, and that's a question that I think my answer changes every day, that Mm. I only know Florida. I was born and raised in Florida. I wasn't planning on leaving the state when I graduated. And I've gone back and forth thinking that, yes, I'm going to leave. I'm going to move to a friendlier place, a place where I can, I know for a fact I'll continue to get health care that's covered by insurance. 
And then on the flip side, I want to stay and I want to keep fighting. And I have all of these great job connections for what I want to do with my degree. Um, and so in a perfect world where none of these bills were passing, I absolutely would stay in Florida. And I think I am still going to stay in Florida. But it is scary to think about. You know, it's hard not to feel as if there's a target on your back as a trans person in the state of Florida. Those who are opposed to gender-affirming care for transgender youth often make the argument that it's unsafe, that it's experimental. They might mention bone loss with puberty blockers or risks of permanent infertility with hormone replacement therapy. Uh, Parker, do you share any of those concerns about the long-term effects of the care that you're getting? Uh, for me, the biggest concern is balding. Uh, <laughs> but Same here. <laughs> outside of that, I would say that my care has been very regulated. I go in for routine blood work. I take supplements to make sure that my bones stay strong. I would say as far as things have gone, I've at least mental health-wise, I feel like I've even improved. I'm sure you've all heard a lot of the inflammatory and often really quite hateful language in these debates over transgender rights, which sometimes includes people essentially saying that trans people don't exist, that there are two sexes, that being trans is not an identity, it's an ideology. And I wonder how you shield yourself from vitriol like that, especially when it's framed as denying that trans people, that you, don't even exist. As a woman of color, I experience that quite often. And I've gotten used to the rhetoric that comes out of the conversations that so many of them have because it's been directed at us as people of color throughout the generations. And I've learned to just ignore a lot of that noise because that's what it is to me, it's noise. I ignore it. That's when I take my trip down to the beach or go up into the mountains and just Exhale and let it go. Let it out. Caleb, what about you? Yep. This is something I talked to my mom about after what Representative Webster Barnaby's comments um, in the Florida legislature. He called trans people demons, imps, mutants, compared us to X-Men mutants. Mm. And I was sitting in the room when he said that. And I remember my first thought and my first action was I started laughing out loud, like legitimately laughing. And my thought was just, this man is so insecure. He's placing all of his hatred towards a group of people that he does not even want to even attempt to understand. This is a very shallow man and a, just someone that I don't think even respects himself if he can't respect people different from him. And the people who are against us are a very loud, but a very small minority, that most people are good, and I truly do believe that. As we wrap up here, Deborah, I wonder if you have words of advice from your perspective as a 66-year-old woman for your younger colleagues here, <laughs> Caleb and Parker, things you know now that you wish you had known when you transitioned. These two that I've listened to have just warmed my spirit in ways that I am so proud. I'm so proud of the both of you, how you continue to persevere and press forward in your knowledge and in understanding, walking in your authenticity. Remain in those supportive communities that will be able to help strengthen you, help guide and protect, 
And because you have loving parents, supportive parents there, guys, I I need to be a part of y'all family. <laughs> so you guys hang in there, continue to do what you do and move forward because you all are going to move the needle to another level for the generation that's coming up behind you. Caleb, you've got about five years on Parker. What what things would you like him to know? Uh, I mean, that transitioning is great. That every single year from when I was 16 to now, I've just become more and more comfortable and happy in my own identity and have just loved being able to become the man that I am today. The needle is always taking towards the path of progress. It's not fair that we need to be the ones pushing it. It'd be great if that needle ticked on its own, but it doesn't. And it is an honor in some ways to be able to push that needle. You're doing a great job already at helping do that for the entire community, not just yourself. And that's huge to be doing at 16. And Parker, I'm going to give you the last word. Thank you both so much. The, I'm at a point now that I never thought I would get to. Younger me never thought that I was going to be able to transition or that I would find myself in such an accepting environment. And now that things are kind of cracking down, being able to see older queer people just being their true selves and living their lives and hearing just such words of encouragement, it really, it, it just, it makes me feel great and it makes me feel hopeful for my future. Well, Parker, Andrews, Caleb Hobson Garcia, Deborah Hopkins, thank you all so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Melissa, thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the failed launch of SpaceX's Starship rocket in Texas last week did more than explode the world's largest ever rocket. It caused more environmental damage than expected. And in about five minutes, our next segment of My Sung Unsung Hero, a man who could have died during a skydiving incident, wants to thank the person who saved him. WBUR supporters include Summer Term at Boston University, offering convenient day, evening, and online scheduling with courses open to working professionals and lifelong learners. Study education, communication, business, project management, computer science, the arts, film and TV, languages, literature, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. Today, the Dow and S&P both gave up territory. The Dow rose nearly seven-tenths of a percent, or fell nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P fell almost four-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq came out on the winning side. It was up almost a half percent. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey wants to extend the state's life sciences initiative. She tells the Boston Business Journal she intends to file a third iteration of the multimillion-dollar spending bill that's aimed at spurring growth in the state's biopharma industry. The current version of the program expires this summer. Former Governor Deval Patrick launched the initiative in 2008 with a billion dollars for capital spending, tax incentives, and other programs. Healy says she's not ready yet to say how much money she wants to allocate in the legislation. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. 
Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. Some bright sunshine out there in the Boston area now and should be sunny into the evening hours, then overcast overnight tonight, breezy down around the mid-40s, tomorrow mainly gray, the off chance of an afternoon shower, about 53 degrees for a high, and that is where it is right now in the Boston area, 53 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Melissa Block. And I'm Elsa Chang. Rana Plaza was a pretty typical commercial building in Bangladesh. At eight stories tall, it housed five garment factories near the capital city of Dhaka. And in April 2013, it collapsed in a matter of minutes. More than 1,100 people died, sending shockwaves throughout the world and the fashion industry in particular. The Rana Plaza collapse is considered the deadliest accident in the modern history of the garment industry and one of the deadliest industrial accidents ever. Elizabeth Payton covers fashion for The New York Times. She wrote about the 10-year anniversary of the disaster and talked to several survivors. She joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Bangladesh, I mean, it's a major hub for the fashion industry. In recent decades, it's become one of the biggest exporters of garments in the world. Can you just start by telling us a little about what Rana Plaza was and the scale of the operation at the time. Well, as you touched on in your introduction, um, there are many, many buildings just like Rana Plaza all over Bangladesh. Bangladesh is the second largest garment exporter in the world after China. It's become a huge sourcing hub for all the household fashion brands that are in your local stores. So, you know, whether it's The Gap or it's Target, Walmart, Amazon, all of these brands source their low-priced clothes from Bangladesh. And so there were five factories that day powering out thousands of garments, T-shirts, sweatpants, uh, children's clothes that would later be shipped around the world. Well, after this devastating disaster, there were some reforms implemented throughout the fashion industry. Can you tell us about some of the most notable reforms and, and how much of a difference they actually made in the last 10 years? So before Rana Plaza, there were no or very little formal agreements between brands that sourced their clothing from the developing world um, and the clothing suppliers themselves that would guarantee the safety conditions that these clothes were made in. So Western brands didn't necessarily have to take a responsibility in the state of the environment that their clothes were being made. Mm -hmm. I think the degree of public outrage and horror um, at the number of people who were killed or injured really forced a lot of brands to think about the way that they had been doing business in these countries. Um, so the same year of the collapse, 2013, there were two agreements um, that were signed between brands, uh, worker unions, 
and factory owners. And what this did was created a framework by which brands would have to play a role in the fire and safety conditions that were in place in those factories. Would you say that these kinds of agreements have substantially, visibly improved conditions in garment factories over the last decade? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that nobody would dispute that there's been huge progress made in the safety of workers in these factories from a fire perspective and a building safety perspective. But I think it's also important to remind listeners that there are still major issues, things like low wages, harassment in the workplace, union busting. These remain major issues for workers, both in Bangladesh and in other countries in the world. Well, I know that you have spoken with several survivors of the Rana Plaza collapse. What did you hear from them? How are their lives right now? The survivors of Rana Plaza have the most tragic stories to tell. The vast majority of these workers were women. Um, and beyond the obvious traumatic nature of their physical injuries, many of them, I think up to half, have never been able to work since or earn an independent income. Some of the women that I spoke to last week as part of my reporting talked about the fact that they had been abandoned by their husbands or that their families saw them as a financial burden because they could no longer work anymore. Lots of them spoke about the fact they still, 10 years on, have terrible nightmares or, or sleeping pill addictions that really hamper their everyday life. And there has been some efforts to compensate workers, um, both through charitable initiatives or by the Bangladeshi government. But the, the amount of money that most of them had been offered is very, very little. Um, and the average wage in Bangladesh remains around $75 a month. So many of them are not just haunted by what happened to them 10 years ago. They still have huge fears about what the future holds for them. That is Elizabeth Payton of The New York Times. Thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you. Elsewhere in today's program, I'll speak with someone who's been an economic advisor to two different presidents and once again works for the White House, meaning he's seen this current fight over the debt ceiling before. We'll hear from Gene Sperling. But first, it's time now for My Unsung Hero. It's our series from the team at Hidden Brain, which tells stories about people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Alan Ayers. My unsung hero involves an incident that happened over 50 years ago. In 1970, I was participating in a skydiving jump meet in Gainesville, Florida, and uh, we had a team competition. And for the team competition, myself and two others were jumping out of a Cessna 172. And for the jump meet, they had removed the passenger door and the front passenger seat. But unfortunately, the seatbelt remained and was still buckled. And as I left the plane, I tripped over the seatbelt and fell out the door with the seatbelt looped around my ankle. I was completely out of the plane, on my back, staring up at the belly of the Cessna with only my boot visible to the pilot, who was the only person left in the plane. I tried to pull myself up to reach the buckle, but I just couldn't. I was pretty much helpless and totally out of options. And what happened next was incredible. The 23-year-old pilot unbuckled her seatbelt, crouched down in the door of an airplane with both hands off the yoke and freed my ankle. I tumbled away and safely opened my chute. 
And to this day, I can see her two young hands reaching out of the door to unbuckle the belt. When I landed in the confusion after I got down, I wasn't able to find her to thank her. I owe my life to this person and will always think of her as one of the bravest people imaginable. Alan Ayers lives in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He says this incident taught him a lot about remaining calm in dangerous situations. He no longer skydives, but he still likes to spend time in the air hang gliding. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about five minutes, a new alliance between the U.S. and South Korea aimed at deterring military escalation in North Korea. A beautiful afternoon. Some clouds moving in tonight, though. Overcast temperatures about 44 degrees. Tomorrow should be overcast for the most part. Maybe some showers in the mid-afternoon. Temperatures in the mid-50s. 53 degrees now in Boston. The time is 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, celebrating Cinco de Mayo and catering taco bars to offices in Greater Boston. Online ordering at lacuchara.com. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. The Air Force hits pause on its intelligence mission following the recent leak of classified documents. It's using the time to take stock of security measures. But plugging intelligence leaks is a complicated business. It won't be a one single thing that's going to keep this from ever happening again by doing this one thing that never happens that way. So what can be done? That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. During a phone call today with Ukraine's president, Chinese leader Xi Jinping says dialogue and negotiation are the only viable way forward in its war with Russia. This was the first conversation between the two men since Russia invaded Ukraine more than a year ago. NPR's John Ruwich has more. China claims to be neutral in the Ukraine war and put forward a set of principles earlier this spring for resolving the conflict. But Beijing has been sympathetic to Russia and has not condemned the invasion. In March, Xi visited Moscow, declaring the China-Russia relationship to be strong. In their call, Xi told Zelensky China will send its special representative for Eurasian affairs to Ukraine for talks to try to help resolve the conflict. He didn't say when that would happen. Xi also said rational thinking and voices are now on the rise and it's important to, quote, 
seize the opportunity and build up favorable conditions for the political settlement of the crisis. John Ruich, NPR News. There's a growing field of Republicans looking to unseat former President Donald Trump as the top contender for the party's nomination in 2024. Today, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson formally announced his campaign for president, calling it a battle for the future of the country and the soul of the Republican Party. In this campaign for president, I stand alone in terms of my experience, my record and leadership. From Congress to the DEA to Homeland Security, I have served our country in times of crisis. Asa Hutchinson is one of five people formally running as a Republican alternative to Trump, while some other potential contenders have yet to join the race, including former Vice President Mike Pence and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Stocks finish mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow lost 228 points, down more than half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some former emergency response officials in Boston testified today on the lessons of the Boston Marathon bombings. One-time members of the Boston Police, Emergency Medical Services, and the FBI appeared before a Senate subcommittee on Capitol Hill. WBRO's Walter Wuthman has more. Officials told senators the marathon bombings launched a new era of collaboration between local and federal law enforcement agencies. As an example, former Boston EMS chief Richard Serino said the emergency response in Boston affected the response to the 2015 terror attacks in Paris. People from Paris actually said they learned from what they had read about what happened in Boston, and that helped save lives there. Then they came to Boston, and we learned from them and have shared that even more broadly, again, across multiple disciplines. So a lot of lessons learned. Serino said the COVID pandemic paused such collaborations, and he urged Congress to recommit to training and public safety grant programs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Tens of thousands of people convicted of drunk driving in Massachusetts are eligible to seek dismissals of their convictions. That's according to the state's highest court. Today's Supreme Judicial Court ruling follows a discovery that some breath test results conducted by police were faulty because breathalyzer machines were not routinely calibrated. The court order means that those convicted between 2011 and 2019 can ask for dismissals without having to provide egregious government misconduct. City of Lowell computer system is still offline. The network at Lowell City Hall was hit by a cyber attack Monday. 911 and other emergency numbers are working, though. City officials say there's no reason to believe any data have been compromised. The system may not be completely back online until next week. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Bright and beautiful out there this afternoon. Overnight tonight, turning overcast, breezy, temperatures in the mid-40s. Then for tomorrow, lots of clouds around, maybe some intermittent showers with temperatures about 53 for high. Friday turning brighter again, a little bit milder, highs about 57, 53 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the Confessions of Franny Langton. One woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, 
Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Block in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The day after formally announcing a bid for a second term, President Biden took questions from reporters for the first time in more than a month. The occasion was a state visit from South Korean President Yoon Song-yeol. In between a welcome ceremony on the South Lawn in this morning and a state dinner this evening, the two leaders agreed on a deal to send an American nuclear-armed submarine to visit South Korea. But given how long it's been since Biden held a press conference, there were questions on other topics as well. NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow was in the Rose Garden with Biden and Yoon and joins us now. Hey, Scott. Hey, Elsa. All right. So let's start with that re-election campaign. What exactly did Biden say about that? He was asked about something that polls show is one of his biggest weaknesses with voters, and that's his age. Biden's 80 now. He'll be 86 at the end of his second term. And poll after poll shows a lot of voters, even voters who really like Joe Biden, are hesitant to send it back to the White House, given him his age. In the past, Biden has responded by saying, just watch me. He expanded on that today, more than I've heard before, and he said it's a fair concern. One of the things that people are going to find out, they're going to see a race, and they're going to judge whether or not I have it or don't have it. I respect them taking a hard look at it. I take a hard look at it as well. I took a hard look at it before I decided to run. Biden also said uh, he doesn't even like to say the numbers of his age. He's, he seemed to be referencing comments he's made before about feeling younger than he is. Uh, you also heard Biden get to the fact that it's a race and a choice. And it's fair to say it would probably be less of an issue if he's running against Donald Trump, who's about to turn 77. Mm-hmm. And on Trump, Biden talked about what he sees as the danger that Trump poses to the country compared the men's records. It seems like Biden is ready for a possible rematch election next year. Okay, and I understand that around the same time that Biden began speaking, the House of Representatives began considering the Republican plan to raise the debt ceiling. And, you know, just to recap, Republicans want to cut spending and scale back some of Biden's signature programs in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. So I'm wondering, did Biden give any indication that he is willing to deal on that front? Yeah, he reiterated what he has said over and over, that he's not going to negotiate on this. Reporters asked Biden about this as he was walking back to the Oval Office. He paused, he turned around, and he said this. Happy to meet with McCarthy, but not on whether or not the debt limit gets extended. That's not negotiable. So as we've been talking about, that date where the U.S. runs out of money to pay its bills is getting closer and closer. Biden says he's not budging. It's clear here that he is trying to make House Republicans seem to be the irresponsible party for trying to set conditions for paying off the nation's bills. All right. Well, now let's just get to the main business of the press conference. Biden's meeting with President Yoon and their shared concerns about a nuclear threat from North Korea. What exactly did they have to say? Yeah, this has understandably been a high profile issue in South Korea. And Biden tried to reassure allies that they have the U.S.'s support and its military backing. Look, nuclear attack by North Korea against the United States or its allies or partisans uh, or partners is unacceptable and will result in the end of whatever regime were to take such an action. And the context here is that North Korea has been pretty aggressive lately about testing missiles. So today, the two leaders agreed on stronger cooperation on nuclear deterrence against North Korea. And one key part of that will be sending a nuclear-armed American sub to visit South Korea. That would be the first time since the 1980s that that happened. Wow. That is NPR's Scott Detrow. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Washington has become the 10th state in the U.S. to restrict the sale of assault-style weapons. 
The bans are a response to recent mass shootings, and they're mostly being taken up in states run by Democrats. That's setting up a confrontation in the courts over whether such bans are even enforceable. NPR's Martin Costi has more. Traditionally, Washington has had permissive gun laws, but that's been changing in the last few years. The state has restricted large-capacity ammunition magazines. It's raised the age to buy semi-automatic rifles to 21. And now this. We're here to say enough is enough. That state Senator Patty Kuderer, a Democrat, calling on her colleagues earlier this month to ban new sales of a long list of semi-automatic rifles and other guns broadly categorized as assault weapons. I don't want to see another life taken in a mass shooting. I don't want to see any more gun violence. I was quite frankly, fed up at Columbine. At the time of the Columbine school massacre in Colorado in 1999, the U.S. had a federal ban on assault weapons, but that law expired in 2004. Sam Levy is the regional legal director at Every Town for Gun Safety. Unfortunately, in this environment federally, there's, there's no federal help coming in terms of regulating these deadly weapons, uh, and so the responsibility falls to the states to do what they can. States such as California and New York have had their own bans for years, and homicide rates are lower there than the national average. Assault weapons account for a very small percentage of homicides, but they are used in most high-profile mass shootings, such as Uvalde, Texas. After that tragedy last May, more states passed assault weapons bans, first Delaware, then Illinois, now Washington, where the gun stores saw the predictable rush of customers as the legislation neared passage. We ran about a year and a half worth of sales out through through these last two months. Austin Chang owns Iron Monkey Rifle Works in suburban Seattle. His displays are mostly empty now, save for the odd rarity, like a modified Kalashnikov. Chang is surprisingly accepting of this new ban. We've seen such horrible things happen with firearms, and of course, honestly, being in the industry, I too feel responsible, you know, in some way. Not literally, but I understand what they're trying to do, I know that they won't get the result that they want. He says his customers are not the problem, but in a Democratic-run state, he doesn't see how you can turn back this tide of gun restrictions. Farther away from Seattle, in Vancouver, Washington, Dan Mitchell is not giving up. There's multiple lawsuits that are already prepared, and those will be filed the moment the ink is dry. Mitchell also owns a gun store, and he's an eager plaintiff in Second Amendment lawsuits, which have cropped up in almost every state with a ban like this. He sees these bans as unconstitutional, especially after the Supreme Court's Bruin decision last year. Bruin really did a fine job of requiring states to prove that there was similar restrictions at the time of our founding in, in, or the passage of the, of the Bill of Rights in 1791. He expects the courts will eventually have to affirm Americans' traditional right to these guns, even though AR-15s didn't exist two centuries ago. Mitchell says that doesn't matter because traditional rights also apply to new technologies. Did they have telephones when they signed the Bill of Rights? Why is our phone conversation protected if we didn't have phones back then? But other considerations may also come into play under Bruin, says Andrew Willinger. He's the executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. If you say, well, there's a historical tradition of restricting dangerous weapons more generally, right? Things like uh, Bowie knives. Bruin says that if there's technological changes or unprecedented societal concerns, that you should use a more nuanced analysis. In other words, does public concern about the sheer lethality of assault-style weapons make them a special case, guns so powerful they can be restricted? 
As states pass laws that Congress won't, Willinger predicts the courts will contradict each other quite a bit on this question before we get a final answer. Martin Costi, NPR News, Seattle. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Federal Aviation Administration has grounded the SpaceX Starship program. SpaceX launched the largest rocket in the world last week, and then it exploded and debris particles rained on the city of Port Isabel, Texas. There's also extensive damage to the area around the launch site. Gabe Gage Davila with Texas Public Radio was one of the first to check out the impact to nearby Boca Chica Beach. Last Thursday, SpaceX's launch pad was awash in noise and fire. A few minutes later, Starship exploded. Almost a week later, its debris is still washing up along the Texas shores of the Gulf of Mexico. But today, Boca Chica Beach is mostly quiet, except for the consistent drone of nearby SpaceX. I walk through the dunes towards the windy mud flat just south of the launch pad. There's debris spread nearly a mile around, some the size of golf balls, others as big as engine blocks. The entire bed of this mud flat is covered with pieces of concrete and rebar. Some have impacted the ground so hard that they've left holes that are about two and a half to three feet deep and six feet across. I make my way to the other side of the launch pad. This is a sensitive wildlife habitat where the mudflats are covered in algae. There's the same amount of concrete, more big divots in the earth, pieces of metal. Looks like they bounced or carved into the earth. Any vegetation within a few hundred yards of the launch pad was singed. There were several fires. One burned in nearly three acres of land. You get in there and it it looks like a, a literal bomb went off. Justin LeClaire is a conservation biologist with the Coastal Bend Bays and Estuaries Program. During his survey of Boca Chica, he documented around 300 acres affected by debris. LeClaire found federally protected shorebird nests within a few feet of the launched concrete. He's worried if SpaceX launches routinely from here, no wildlife will stick around Boca Chica. If these major disturbances, in addition to actual damage to the habitat, just happen consistently every month, every week, Birds and other other wildlife are not likely to use that habitat. SpaceX could have prevented the damage, but it disregarded building better launch infrastructure, says Eric Resch. He is an environmental compliance specialist who blogs about SpaceX. For one, he says, the company did not invest in proven launch infrastructure like a flame trench, which diverts most of the thrust of the rocket. It sure seemed like the decision to not do these very basic channels or flame protection or systems you see everywhere else was was a matter of convenience. Resch says SpaceX was too eager to launch its largest rocket. CEO Elon Musk said a steel plate was supposed to go under the launch pad, but it wasn't ready in time. SpaceX thought the concrete would hold based on the static fire test held in February, but that test was only at 50% thrust. Resch says that the environmental review SpaceX gave to the FAA underestimated Starship's power. What the company called a successful launch actually caused as much damage it had predicted for a full-on explosion on the launch pad. I think that probably illustrates better than anything else 
how woefully and just like fundamentally inadequate the entire environmental review process is. Besides grounding the Starship program, the FAA has activated its mishap response plan. It requires SpaceX to work with state and federal agencies to remove the debris and survey the damage. In a statement, the agency says it will make sure SpaceX complies with environmental regulations. For NPR News, I'm Gage Davila in Port Isabel, Texas. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered. The paradox of the brutal fighting going on in Sudan. The two generals on opposing sides in the war actually have a history of working together. And in about five minutes, fights over decorum in state legislatures are nothing new, but they're looking different now that Republicans and Democrats have become more splintered. These stories and much more still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store today. More clouds moving in overnight tonight, down around 40 degrees. For tomorrow, cloudy for the most part, temperatures in the mid-50s. WBUR supporters include Waterstone, a new luxury independent and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington, waterstonelexington.com. And Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style Event. Window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and innuendo.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, more than 6,000 students have left the Boston public schools in the last five years. The city and the district say it might be time to look at consolidating school buildings. Is that the right move for students and teachers? And if it is, can they do it equitably? That's Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Melissa Block. Jury deliberations are underway in the case against Enrique Tarrio and four other members of the Proud Boys group. The landmark seditious conspiracy trial has focused on the defendants' actions before and after the siege on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson has been covering the case in federal court here in Washington and joins us now. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Melissa. This case has been going on for months. It started back in December this week. Uh, how did prosecutors sum up their case? Yeah, prosecutors say these Proud Boys were thirsting for violence, that Enrique Tarrio and the other four defendants saw themselves as kind of a fighting force for then-President Donald Trump, and that they entered into an agreement to stop certification of the 2020 presidential election by any means necessary, including force. The DOJ reminded jurors about the defendants' own words in chat messages and videos and podcasts, including a message from Tarrio himself after the storm of the Capitol that said, quote, make no mistake, we did this. So that's the, the prosecution's summation. What about lawyers for the defendant, Enrique Tarrio? 
Yeah, his lawyer, Naib Hassan, uh, pointed out that Tario was actually in Baltimore on January 6th because he'd been arrested for other charges and had been banished from D.C. by a judge. Tario's lawyer says this case is really all about one person, and that's Donald Trump. He told the jury it's Trump's words, Trump's anger, Trump's motivations that caused what happened on January 6th. Uh, and Trump telling the, to, the crowd to fight like hell that day caused what happened next. Uh, Tario's lawyer says prosecutors are using Tario as a scapegoat because they can't or don't want to bring charges against the former President Trump. Well, now the case is in the hands of the jury. They began deliberations this morning, and it sounds like they have a, a ton of evidence and testimony to weigh. So much evidence, so much testimony, half a million chat messages, testimony from FBI agents and police officers who were on the front lines on January 6th. Two of the defendants took the witness stand, too, kind of a risky move. One is Zach Reel, who led the Philadelphia chapter of the Proud Boys. The other is Dominic Pizzola. You may remember him because... He famously broke a window in the Capitol using a police shield he grabbed that day. And this is a seditious conspiracy case, one of the most important to come from January 6th. In a similar trial last year involving the Oath Keepers group, that jury took more than a week to reach a verdict. Okay. And as you say, it's one of the most serious cases stemming from that uprising. We expect a lot more to come from the Justice Department? Absolutely. The U.S. attorney here in Washington has told the court to expect possibly a thousand more cases against rioters who broke the law on January 6th. That's about double the number of cases we have now. And that's going to keep prosecutors and defense lawyers and judges busy for years to come. Okay. And separately, what about the role of former President Donald Trump and his inner circle? Where does that part of the investigation stand? Yeah, sure. Here in this federal courthouse down the block from the Capitol, the grand juries have been really active. Things are happening behind closed doors, but we have some clues. They've heard testimony from lawyers in the Trump White House, people close to the former vice president. Mike Pence himself was subpoenaed. Special counsel Jack Smith is leading that investigation. No public charges there yet. Okay, and Piers, Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thanks so much. My pleasure. The two black Democrats expelled from the Tennessee House several weeks ago are now back in their seats. And today, the Montana House voted to ban transgender lawmaker Zoe Zephyr from attending or speaking during sessions after she protested a gender-affirming care ban. But she will be allowed to vote remotely. Now, lawmakers in other parts of the country worry that those examples may foreshadow what's to come in their own state houses. WABE's Sam Greenglass reports from Atlanta. A day after the Republican-dominated Tennessee House voted to expel the two legislators for interrupting a Zoom session, Democrats in Georgia gathered on Zoom. If you don't think it can happen in Georgia, you're sadly mistaken. That was State Representative Kim Schofield. Also on the call, House Minority Leader James Beverly. He said Georgia's Republican-led legislature also applies decorum rules and norms unevenly. The rules are made for those who are in a minority, not majority. Like two years ago, Beverly says, when police arrested a Democratic lawmaker. You're going to arrest an elected representative. Representative Park Cannon had been trying to get into a locked room where the Republican governor was touting a sweeping new election law. Tell us now, why are you arresting her? For some Democrats, the expulsions in Tennessee evoked another moment five decades ago. Julian Bond, a young black civil rights leader, had just been elected to a Georgia House seat, but he refused to condemn a critical statement on the Vietnam War. Bond told an interviewer in 1967 what happened next. The elected officials were whipped up to 
the point where they finally voted to refuse to allow me to take the oath of office. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that lawmakers have wide latitude to express views on policy, and the justices said Bond had to be seated. Go further back in time, and there's the original 33. During Reconstruction, they were the first African Americans elected to Georgia's legislature. Then, white lawmakers from both parties banded together to have them expelled. But University of Washington professor Jake Grumbach says what's happening in state houses now has a lot more to do with national partisan battles than the specific politics of Georgia, Tennessee, Montana, or any other state. We're now seeing a huge amount of national tug of wars over the direction of the country happening at the state level because that's where the political opportunities are. Grumbach wrote a book called Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transform State Politics. And while Democratic and Republican majorities alike wield power to pass partisan priorities, Grumbach says one party has been more prone to break norms. We've seen Republicans really exploit their advantage within the bounds of the law more than Democrats have. Georgia's House Majority Leader, Republican Chuck F. Stration, says what's happening in other state houses doesn't apply to Georgia. But he says decorum rules create space for civil discussions on thorny topics. The Georgia House of Representatives believes very deeply in maintaining the opportunity for respectful debate, for members to vote their conscience, vote their districts. And that's really how legislative body ought to work. But Democrats say the majority exploits their dominance to shove through legislation that doesn't match the views of the people, like restricting abortion and making it harder to vote. Professor Grumbach says gerrymandering helps make this possible. In Battleground Georgia last year, just five of 236 state house races were considered competitive. There really has been a breakdown of the relationship between citizens' opinions and policy at the state level. Democratic Representative Michelle Au sees that disconnect in Republicans' unwillingness to consider even popular proposals to strengthen Georgia's gun laws. So much so that just getting a hearing on her bill requiring safe firearm storage around kids was a victory. Your choice to hear this bill is really a testament to your openness and your leadership. Even so, the Republican leadership didn't allow the bill to come for a vote. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Beautiful sunshine out there now into the evening hours. Overnight tonight, cloudy, breezy down in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be mainly cloudy. The off chance of an afternoon shower, about 53 degrees for a high. 52 degrees now in Boston at 459. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Next Generation, a showcase of elite young artists and Boston Ballet School student talent at Citizens Bank Opera House Friday, May 19th, bostonballet.org, and Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court hears the case of a Minnesota woman who failed to pay her property taxes. The county seized her home, sold it, and kept $25,000 more than what she owed. When the government takes property to satisfy a debt and takes more than what is owed, it has a constitutional duty to return or pay for the excess. This is All Things Considered. Nina Totenberg's story coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the coordinator for the American Rescue Plan tells us about Republicans' debt ceiling bill that would slash federal spending and undo some of the president's domestic agenda. And Boston honors the late civil rights leader Mel King by naming a group of schools after him. His widow says it's a fitting tribute. He really believed that we could all live and work and learn and play together. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In a sharp rebuke to recent missile tests by North Korea, President Biden and South Korea's leader have agreed to bolster their potential response to the persistent nuclear threat posed by the North. Biden repeating a warning that any nuclear attack by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un or any other leader would be met with overwhelming force. A nuclear attack by North Korea against the United States or its allies or partisans uh, or partners is unacceptable and will result in the end of whatever regime were to take such an action. Biden and South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol announcing a new agreement today that would include plans to place a U.S. nuclear submarine in South Korea for the first time in more than 40 years. Republican leaders have voted to censor a transgender state lawmaker who has been silenced on the state house floor for comments against a bill to ban gender-affirming medical care for children. A protest against Democrat Zoe Zephyr being silenced disrupted a House floor session this week. Zephyr last night tweeted a letter she received from House leaders informing her of the plan to consider disciplinary action. Today, lawmakers in the GOP-led House voted to bar Zephyr from the House floor for the rest of the 2023 legislative session. A co-founder of a group that raised money to help build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border was sentenced today to more than four years in prison. NPR's Joel Rose reports he had previously pleaded guilty to defrauding donors. The group known as We Build the Wall raised more than $25 million from donors around the country. Co-founder Brian Colfage said he would not take a penny from the campaign, but ultimately he pleaded guilty for his role in siphoning off funds, which prosecutors say he spent on personal expenses, including boat payments and a luxury SUV. Notably absent from the case is Steve Bannon, a former political advisor to Donald Trump. Bannon was initially charged along with the other defendants, but was pardoned by the former president during his final hours in office. Bannon is now facing state charges, which he has called nonsense. 
Joel Rose, NPR News. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll finds respondents broadly in support of abortion rights, but they also favor some restrictions. NPR's Domenico Montanaro tells us they don't want to go as far as Republicans in many red states are going. The survey of almost 1,300 adults found 6 in 10 oppose six-week bans. Nearly two-thirds are against banning access to a medication abortion with a prescription drug like mifepristone. That includes a majority of Republicans who are opposed to both. Respondents also said they're in favor of states where abortion is legal, acting as safe havens for those seeking abortions coming from out of state. On that question, a majority of Republicans are not in favor. The poll is another example of some of the political and messaging challenges for Republicans since the Supreme Court overturned the guaranteed right to an abortion in all states. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Mixed close on Wall Street. The Dow was down 228 points. The Nasdaq rose 55 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Four schools in Boston that serve students with disabilities have a new name. The McKinley Schools are now known as the Mel King South End Academy. King was a legendary South End organizer and civil rights leader who died last month. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, today's honor is about more than the school's name change. The renaming ceremony was held in the school's cramped and aging auditorium. The crowd was ecstatic when Mayor Michelle Wu announced a renovation to go along with the school's new identity. We're looking forward to moving this renovation into the design phase in this coming year. The mayor says that process will begin with a community redesign. And that fits with Mel King's vision of politics, says educator and activist Edith Bazil. He was about doing things with the community, not to the community. And I think that the students' voices here are the most important. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. A former Harvard University professor has been sentenced today for lying to federal investigators about his ties to a Chinese-run science recruitment program. 64-year-old Charles Lieber will serve two years of supervised release, including six months of home confinement. He was convicted in 2021 on charges that included failure to pay U.S. taxes on payments he got from a Chinese university. Prosecutors say Lieber was paid by a Chinese program to publish articles, organize conferences, and apply for patents on behalf of Wuhan University of Technology. Today, the judge also ordered him to pay a $50,000 fine. New Hampshire officials say they will need up to two years to eliminate wait times for inpatient mental health treatment. As Paul Kuno Booth reports, this comes after a federal judge ruled the state must stop holding patients who are in psychiatric distress inside emergency rooms. The judge's order, issued in February, said New Hampshire has an obligation to get those patients into treatment immediately, and not after they spend days or sometimes longer in the ER, as often happens now. But the court did not specify how or when the state must comply. The state health department and a group of hospitals suing the state have now filed competing proposals over that question. The hospitals say the state should be given one year to comply and should fast-track opening more inpatient beds. In their filing, state officials say that timeline is impossible, in part because of labor shortages. They say they're working to expand the mental health system's capacity, including plans to help build a new mental health hospital in southern New Hampshire. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Paul Kuno Booth. Sunset is at 7.38 tonight. We should get in a lot of sunshine before then. Overnight tonight, though, cloudy skies, temperatures in the mid-40s. Generally cloudy tomorrow in the mid-50s tops. 53 degrees now in Boston at 5.07.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by WETA, presenting the new history TV series, Iconic America, Our Symbols and Stories, with David Rubenstein, airing tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on PBS stations and streaming on the PBS app. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Well, here we are in late April 2023. It has been months since the U.S. government reached its debt ceiling, the amount of money it can legally borrow to fund government programs. The Treasury is already using what it calls extraordinary measures to continue paying for Social Security, Medicare, and the military. But it estimates that that will only hold until early June. And at that point, the government could default on its debt, and that could be economically disastrous. Now, Congress can simply decide to raise the debt ceiling, which it has done 78 times since 1960. But here's the standoff. The Republican House majority says it won't do that without major spending cuts. President Biden insists that they raise the debt limit with no conditions. So how does this get solved? Well, Gene Sperling has seen debt ceiling showdowns before. He was a top economic advisor to Presidents Clinton and Obama. And now he's back in the White House as coordinator for the American Rescue Plan. Mr. Sperling, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. The reality here is Republicans control the House and they say President Biden has to negotiate with them. So why not do that? Well, the truth is that when somebody says negotiate on the debt limit, that is a sanitized way of saying, I'm going to make you do what I want on my budget policies, or I'm going to put the United States into default for the first time in our history. And uh, and this has been a foundation of the United States to have an immaculate full faith and, and credit. And so what the president is saying is um, you put out your budget, we've put out ours, let's have a debate, but no side, not Democrats or Republicans should say, I'm going to hold the full faith and credit of the United States hostage uh, to you giving me what I want on my budget. You don't see President Biden doing that. He's not saying do my childcare proposal or I'm going to have the US economy go into default. And most importantly, since 2011, when, when we went through this and it mm-hmm. cost us 1.2 million jobs, no side, Democrat or Republican, nine times in a row, including three times under President Trump, have insisted on a budget uh, policy to raise the debt. So three times under President Trump, Nancy Pelosi could have did that. She did not. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we realized nobody should say my way, particularly this extreme way, or we're going to put the country into default and probably cause a significant recession. Okay, if I may, in 2011, um, when there was another major confrontation over the debt limit, Republicans also controlled the House then. You were an advisor to President Obama, and the White House did make concessions. There were significant spending cuts, no? Was that a precedent that you set? That that, That was a lesson learned. We didn't want to do it. We let ourselves get drafted into it. And what happened? Because because the Republicans even played brinksmanship with default, default brinksmanship, our consumer confidence went down 22 percent. People's pension plans, the value went down. Consumer confidence went down. And it's been estimated that we lost 1.2 million jobs, not because we went into default because we avoided that, but just the brinksmanship. So since then, ever since 2011, 
There have been nine increases. Three of them happened under President Trump. And my point is both Democrats and Republicans learned do not hold do not play default brinksmanship when you have used your constitutional authority to spend funds of course you have to pay them and then you have a budget debate so president saying let's have a budget debate on our plan but neither side not democrats or republicans should hold hostage the u.s economy or our full faith and credit Mm -hmm. by saying my way or the highway and these are very extreme proposals they have it would cut things like cancer research and the border security preschool by half over 10 years. It's it, it's even worse that they're relying on such an extreme and one-sided policy uh, and using that and, and saying my way or we will threaten to def- yeah. default, put the United States into default. We only have about 20 seconds left. Um, what do you see the picture being if this does not get resolved before the borrowing limit is reached in June? Well, we have to. We have to. Uh, I mean, I think, first of all, uh, there a lot of Republican and moderate Republicans are walking, walking the plank, taking very harmful votes that would really hurt their constituency, you know, significantly. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that people will come to their senses, will pass the debt limit. And then just as they say, we'll sit down and have a real debate about the president's agenda, which raises and, taxes on the most well-off okay. and invest in care and work. We'll and have theirs, to leave it there. I apologize for cutting you off, but we are out of time. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Gene Sperling, Senior Economic Advisor to President Biden. Okay, now we want to take a closer look at the two generals waging a power struggle in Sudan. These two men actually have a long history of working together. Nearly 20 years ago, they were allies in a brutal military crackdown in Sudan's Darfur region, which was deemed a genocide. NPR's Greg Myrie has been looking into their story and joins us now. Hi, Greg. Hi, Elsa. So before we get into the details, can you just help us frame this conflict? Like, how should we view these two generals at the center of all this fighting right now? Well, these generals are fighting for military control, for political control, and to protect their extensive business interests. Now, I spoke about the generals with Alex DeWall, who's at Tufts University. He's an expert on Sudan who's been involved in that country for decades. What we are seeing is a mobster shootout. We're seeing two, two gang bosses shooting it out for control of the terrain in which they make their illicit money. Two gang bosses. Wow. I I mean, this does sound like a pretty brutal power struggle. Can you just tell us more about who these men are? Yeah, one of them is General Abdul Fattah Burhan. He's the commander of the military, which in effect means he's been the leader or co-leader of Sudan for the past few years. His now rival is General Mohamed Dagalo. He's widely known as Hameti. He heads a powerful paramilitary group that's also part of the government security forces. Now, in 2019, these generals turned on the longtime president and helped him drive him from power during a popular uprising. Since then, the two generals have been the most powerful men in the country, but their partnership became strained, it broke down, and this ignited the fighting we've seen in the capital Khartoum. Hmm. Well, can we go back, Greg, to the early 2000s? Because there was mass slaughter in Sudan's Darfur region. Can you just remind us what was happening at the time and what was the role of these two generals? 
Yeah, right. In, in 2003, rebels in Darfur, a very poor, remote part of western Sudan, rose up against the government. The Sudanese military was sent in. The uprising was crushed in brutal fashion. Around 300,000 people killed, many of them civilians. Now, General Hameti is actually from Darfur, but he sided with the central government and became a leader of a local militia called the Janjaweed, which is blamed for many of the atrocities. This militia evolved directly into the paramilitary group he leads today called the Rapid Support Forces. The RSF. Okay, and what about the other general? General Burhan was sent to Darfur during this same period as the overall army commander, and this is where the two first came into contact, and they worked together to crush the uprising. Well, the U.S. and the international community ruled that a genocide, and yet these two men have remained in power, right? Yeah, they, they, right. They've remained in power and actually rose through the ranks by remaining close to the former president, Omar al-Bashir. Now, the International Criminal Court has charged the former president and several others with genocide and crimes against humanity. We should stress that the two generals who are currently fighting in Sudan have not been charged, but Alex Duvall and human rights groups say both were very deeply involved in the bloodshed there. All right. Well, very quickly, Greg, what are the chances that the current fighting can be stopped, you think? Well, Duvall believes that there's a very small window for the international community to pressure the generals and pull them back for the brink. But he, he, he says it's a very brief period. That is NPR's Greg Myrie. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. All month long, huge fleets of tiny sailors have been washing up on Southern California beaches. They look like little jellyfish, and in fact, they are somewhat related. But these coin-sized creatures have a distinctive, clear mohawk sticking up from their bodies, a sail, if you will. And that's where the common name comes from, by the wind sailor. By the wind sailor, or to a biologist like Julianne Kalman Passarelli. The scientific name is Valella Valella. Valella, Valella. Say it with me, Melissa, really, really fast. Valella, Valella, Valella. Calman Passarelli says she's seen those washing ashore lately near the Cabrillo Marine Aquarium, where she works in San Pedro, California. And in addition to the animals' tiny sails, she says their color is striking. They're bright, beautiful blue. And it's thought to be somewhat like of a camouflage and maybe even kind of a sunscreen because they're so close to the surface. Close to the surface because when they're out at sea, they float on top of the water, sails above the surface, tentacles dangling below. As they bob along, they slurp up plankton that gets tangled in their tentacles. And if you look a little closer, as biologists tend to do, Kalman Passarelli says the Valella Valella is truly more than meets the eye. She explained that what looks like a single creature is actually a colony comprised of many different individuals. It's a colony of animals, and if you look really closely, all those little things hanging down that look like tentacles are all different organisms within the same colony, and they all work together, kind of like coral, and they all have a different purpose. One is for reproduction, one is for feeding, and one is for defense. A cooperative of sorts, and a reminder that life on Earth is truly weird. As for why they're showing up on California shores, well, it's their drifter lifestyle. They rely. 100% on the wind and the currents to move them around. They definitely cannot choose where they want to go, hence why they're getting washed up on the beach, right? It takes the right currents and wind to, uh, I guess, wrong for them, to wash them up. Calman Passarelli says it usually is a springtime phenomenon. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street today. The Dow and S&P both gave up territory. The Dow lost nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P lost about four-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq, though, came out on the winning side. It was up almost a half percent. National Grid is launching a clean energy workforce development initiative to recruit people from marginalized groups. The utility says it hopes to attract workers from groups underrepresented in the sector, including Black, Hispanic, Latino, women, and younger workers. The new initiative funds scholarships and creates partnerships with programs for middle, high school, and college students, as well as adults. Marketplace has business news coming up in just over an hour at 6.30. It's 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. And Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. Today on WBUR's podcast, The Common, Boston's rent control proposal needs approval from the state legislature to become law. Most of those lawmakers own their homes. For a deeper look at the tension, find The Common on your podcast app. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. Should turn overcast overnight tonight, breezy down in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be mainly gray. Could have a shower in the afternoon, about 53 degrees for a high. And then Friday, brighter again, a little bit milder. Could break 60 on Friday. Should be in the 50s for the most part over the weekend. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Melissa Block. Coming up, we meet a photographer who has crisscrossed the U.S. documenting Native American lives. Speaking of teachers, many school districts across the U.S. are grappling with shortages. According to federal data, as of October, 45 percent of public schools in the U.S. had at least one teacher vacancy. That's in part because enrollment in traditional teacher training programs has been way down for years. Now, many communities are getting creative as they try to grow a new generation of teachers. NPR's Corey Turner has a story of one teacher training program in San Antonio, Texas, for teenagers. Everybody have a There's something remarkable about teacher Patrice Bravo's elementary school STEM lab. And I'm not talking about how quick she is with a song or that she bounces effortlessly between English and Spanish. The thing that's remarkable is today's lesson on aerodynamics. Is that what the wind does? No! No, the wind is strong. It makes you go, whoa, like this. Mrs. Bravo asks one of her students, Christopher Olivares, to help by being the wind. 
Right? Here's the wind. Christopher's the wind. Do you see how it wants to push? That's called drag. <laughs> All of a sudden, Christopher That's is helping drag. Mrs. Bravo teach. While he is a student, Christopher's taller than the other second graders, and that's because he's actually a ninth grader. So did you see how it flew on the first video? It came down and it was going <laughs> On the second video, when they put the tennis ball on, it went up, and then it went, and down. It went straight back down. Olivares is part of the very first class at a brand new high school just a few miles away for teens who are interested in becoming teachers. Down the hall, fellow ninth grader Isabel Tate plays a word game with a giggly second grader named Emerson. Ready, set, go. Blue, yellow, black. Green, yeah, no, green. <laughs> green. And around a few corners, just past the soaring paper mache dragon, you'll find Samantha Lopez. She thinks she might want to teach music someday, so she's leading a class on the recorder. This idea of a high school program for aspiring teachers isn't exactly new. Lots of places across the U.S. have been tinkering with it. What's new here, says District Superintendent Brian Woods, is that he's never had to worry about a teacher shortage before. I cannot recall a year, and I've been here over 30, where we began a school year with any vacancies. Zero. The Northside Independent School District serves big chunks of San Antonio. And this year, Wood says, instead of zero vacancies, he's had to gap fill around 200 in a district with roughly 7,000 classroom teachers. We have taken for granted that people of, of mission and faith will come to public schools, and they largely have. And now that is falling apart which is what makes ninth grader Christopher Olivares and his fellow student teachers so interesting. Did you do hot cross buns? Yes, like 15 oh different times. I love that song. Back at the elementary school, a handful of the teens squeeze into the teacher's lounge for some quick pizza and chatter. When you walked into your classroom and they all just like screamed your name and like ran up and hugged you, I was just like, <gasps> There's a lot of laughing, but also something that might surprise you, coming from a bunch of teenagers, a genuine passion for the classroom. I had an eighth grade counselor who made the biggest impact on me. Jayanne Garza is known as Miss J to her class. More than words can express, and now I want to go into counseling so I can do the same and pass on the knowledge that she gave me. Jayanne says even though she chose to leave her friends to attend this new teaching high school. I love, I love the work I'm doing. I love the teachers, just the environment, and just generally feeling like a family. That's literally what It's about this time that I notice an adult standing in the doorway, crying. Erica Olivares is a longtime teacher and now the principal and really the mastermind behind this new teaching high school. Christopher is her son though he surprised her by enrolling in the program without even telling her. So talk to me, what are you feeling right now? I'm feeling a little emotional. When you start a project that's never existed before and you're trying something new, it's really risky. And you know, you put a lot of your heart into that. Uh, it's just, I'm very proud of them. This labor of love is officially called the CAST Teach High School. It's a partnership between the CAST Schools Network, the University of Texas at San Antonio, and the Northside Independent School District. Last year, Olivares traveled the district's middle schools trying to recruit her very first freshman class. Her pitch? Come and enjoy a career in education. Come and explore this possible field. And middle school kids were kind of like, eh, school. So Olivares changed her approach. 
So we started asking students, what are you passionate about? If you love writing or playing basketball or video game design, she said, those are all skills that somebody gets to teach. The pitch worked. 85 rising ninth graders signed up. This first year, they've done most of their learning in portable classrooms. Next year, though, they'll have a brand new building. Principal Erica Olivares gives me a tour of the construction site. In here will be a fully operational early childhood classroom, the little kitty restrooms and everything. This classroom will have a window with two-way glass so the high schoolers can observe each other as well as other teachers working with the children. Olivares says too many new teachers say they quit because they didn't get this kind of classroom experience until the end of college. And a lot of the responses were, I didn't know what to expect. We didn't have hands-on training. I didn't feel properly prepared. These high schoolers, on the other hand, will be exposed to lots of classrooms and age groups, says Superintendent Woods. We firmly believe that when a student walks the graduation stage out of CAS Teach, they're going to be better prepared than the vast majority of people we're taking out of a college setting. All right, so you guys are going to need to get one plastic bottle. One plastic bottle. They're back there. One baggie. One baggie. And some fins. And some fins. Back in Mrs. Bravo's grade school STEM lab, Bravo tells me this is actually the second time she's taught Christopher Olivares. Long before he was her student teacher, he was here as a kindergartner. I remember where he sat. He was close to the door. Because he was actually really quiet in school. How does it feel to have him back now? I love it. I mean, you know, he's got to go to college and graduate, and I'll be in my wheelchair, you know, following him along and applauding and embarrassing him. As a new class of kids pours in, Mrs. Bravo pauses and smiles. That's one of the things I love about teaching is that it is not just about telling kids things. It's pulling out the best in them. And when I get to see it full circle, Teaching is one of the best careers. The district acknowledges this new school is still an experiment. But just as Mrs. Bravo watched Christopher grow from a quiet kindergartner into a confident, hands-on student teacher, so too can today's experiment grow into tomorrow's solution. Corey Turner, NPR News, San Antonio, Texas. This is NPR. This is WBUR. Red Sox fell to the Orioles 6-2 to today in Baltimore. Celtics couldn't close out their first-round playoff series last night, but the Bruins have a chance tonight. The Bees host the Florida Panthers at the Garden in Game 5 of their series. Boston's leading four games to one. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today.
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. China's leader and the president of Ukraine had a long phone conversation today in their first contact since Russia invaded Ukraine more than a year ago. Beijing offered to send an envoy to Kiev to serve as a mediator to pursue a political settlement, but White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says Ukraine has already rejected any talks with Moscow until its troops pull back from all occupied territories in Ukraine. We certainly would welcome um, any uh, effort uh, to arrive at a just peace, as long as that peace could be, as I said, just, could be sustainable, and could be credible. And in our view, it's not going to be sustainable or credible unless the Ukrainians and President Zelensky personally is invested in it and supportive of it. Other Western officials also express skepticism about prospects for peace. Today's phone call comes as Ukrainian troops are getting ready for an expected spring counteroffensive. A group of House Democrats are supporting a bill that would change where incarcerated people are counted for during uh, the census. NPR's Hansi Luong says it aims to prevent redistricting officials from using census data to create voting districts that are filled mostly with folks who are locked behind bars. The N-Prison Gerrymandering Act would require future census counts to tally incarcerated people at their last usual place of residence before they were locked up. It would be a big change for the U.S. Census, which has counted incarcerated people as residents of where they're behind bars since the first count in 1790. Democratic representatives Deborah Ross of North Carolina and Mark Pocan of Wisconsin introduced a similar bill last year. Their new bill faces tougher odds in the GOP-controlled House. Still, some states require prisoner counts to be reallocated to their home communities before their use for redistricting. A new law was signed this week in Montana. Anzi Luong, NPR News. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Elder Affairs Office is not meeting its standards for protecting elders from abuse, according to a new report from Auditor Diana DiZoglio. The report finds the Elder Affairs Office is not conducting mandated monthly tests of an adult protective services system and that the office is not monitoring to ensure proper assessment of elders' decision-making capabilities. The Executive Office of Elder Affairs responded, saying it's working to improve its systems to ensure elder abuse cases get referred to prosecutors. Boston's McKinley schools are now the Melvin H. King South End Academy. The four schools serve students with disabilities. The name change happened today and honors a civil rights leader, former state representative, and longtime South End resident Mel King. King's widow, Joyce King says the naming is special because her husband believed in all kinds of education and bringing people together. And all of the the different things we bring to whatever we do, which makes this an important part of Melvin's life. He really believed that we could all live and work and learn and play together. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the city will continue to work to reshape schools with King's commitment and vision in mind. A request for mariners to slow down in the water south of Martha's Vineyard is in effect for the next two weeks. Federal ocean regulators announced the slow zone today after researchers spotted North Atlantic right whales in the area yesterday. They're a critically endangered species. Fewer than 350 of them are left in the world. Each year, the whales migrate north from the southeast coast up to northern New England and Canada. Mariners are asked to travel at speeds of 10 knots or 11.5 miles per hour or less in the slow zone to protect the whales from vessel strikes. A Chicago man has been charged with carrying a weapon through a security checkpoint at Logan Airport. 
Armand Nair was detained Sunday for having a self-defense weapon known as a vampire straw in his backpack. The 10-inch long metal object can function as an actual straw, but has a beveled end that allows it to also be used as a dagger. Nair posted bail, and he's set to be arraigned next month in East Boston Municipal Court. He has not commented on the charges. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFS. Their active 360-degree approach combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com active360. Sunshine in the Boston area now turning overcast overnight tonight. Breezy down in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be mainly gray. Chance of an afternoon shower, about 53 degrees for a high. 52 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries. Brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spinoff. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Melissa Block in Washington. The woman who sued Donald Trump for sexual assault testified today in her civil suit against him. E. Jean Carroll told jurors the former president raped her in a Manhattan department store changing room in the 1990s. On the stand, she recounted in graphic detail what she alleges happened that day. NPR's Ilya Meritz has been in court, and he joins us now. And Ilya, walk us through what E. Jean Carroll had to say on the stand. Well, you know, she was very controlled as she described the details of the alleged assault in the morning session. It was after the break for lunch when she returned to the stand and was asked to reflect on the fallout from going public about the alleged rape that she said she regretted it about 100 times. And here she kind of choked out a sob and paused and then she said but being able to get my day in court is everything so i'm happy carol also said she was so scared by the backlash she went out and bought bullets for a gun she owned she said she hasn't had sex once or even a romantic relationship with a man since the alleged rape she says she feels unable to flirt with a man and she said one reason she didn't speak out at the time of the alleged rape was that she was fearful she could lose her job hosting a daily tv show because her then boss was roger ailes who was friends with trump well, former President Trump and others have accused E. Jean Carroll of bringing this case purely for publicity's sake. What did she say about that? Carroll said she was fired from her advice column job at Elle magazine after she spoke out. She went from 8 million readers in, in print in the pages of Elle to something like 19,000 on Substack, which is a self-publishing newsletter. She said her book didn't sell well. She didn't make a lot of money and her credibility took a hit. And, you know, she said when she thought when she went public that Trump would at least admit the sexual encounter, but say that it was consensual. So she was shocked that he denied it. And she testified that that really stung and upset her. What about Donald Trump's lawyers? Have we heard from them? You know, the judge had a lot to say to them. In the morning, Donald Trump posted to social media attacking E. Jean Carroll and one of her lawyers, calling the case a scam. In the afternoon, Eric Trump, one of Trump's sons, also posted to social along the same lines. Judge Lewis Kaplan had already warned both sides yesterday to avoid statements that could inflame or provoke civil unrest. Today, he gave two more warnings, telling Trump's lawyer his client may be, quote, 
sailing into harm's way and referring to U.S. statutes that he didn't name that might be applied here. Trump's attorneys also, I should say, moved quickly to strike parts of Carol's testimony when she spoke about Donald Trump's many female accusers as a group. Somewhere around 20 women have accused Trump of sexual misconduct over the years, but these accusations can only be discussed in a very limited way in this trial. Okay, well, when court resumes tomorrow, Ilya, what do you expect? Very tough questioning by Trump's legal team. Carol will be back on the stand for direct examination, and then the defense will have their chance to do the cross-examination. I think they will go straight for her credibility, pointing out she doesn't know the date or even the year of the attack. It was 1995 or 96, she says. They say that means Trump can't provide an alibi. They will go after her for donating to Barack Obama, for writing a book, uh, for writing in her book that the rape affected her very little and saying, I'm fine, now she says something different. Carol has already said, basically, she wanted to put on a public face that was upbeat. And I have to say, watching a 79-year-old woman on the stand accusing a former president is a very dramatic thing. They're going to want to set just the right tone that is going to play well with the jury as they ask her these tough questions. Okay. NPR's Ilya Meritz at Federal Court in Manhattan. Ilya, thanks so much. You're very welcome. Today, the Supreme Court heard its last scheduled argument of the term, a case brought by a 94-year-old widowed grandmother in Minneapolis, whose condominium was seized for failure to pay property taxes. Now, the case is important because Minnesota is one of 20 states that handle the sales of such defaulted properties without sharing the proceeds with the previous owner. And as NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports, today's argument suggests that grandma is likely to win. Geraldine Tyler bought her condo in 1999 and lived there until 2010, when at age 81 she moved to a senior living center at the urging of her children. It's undisputed that after that she failed to pay her property taxes on the condo, despite being repeatedly notified that she risked losing it if she didn't pay up. By 2015, she owed $15,000 in unpaid taxes, interest, and fees, and the county, after offering her a tax payment plan for seniors, as well as other options, seized the condo and sold it at public auction for $40,000. In the Supreme Court today, Tyler's lawyer argued that the county unconstitutionally took the property by keeping the $25,000 over the amount owed in back taxes. Lawyer Christina Martin said that amounts to a taking of property without just compensation, something that the Constitution explicitly forbids. Chief Justice Roberts noted that traditionally such matters are left to state law. And indeed, at the founding, some states did have laws like Minnesota's. Justice Sotomayor followed up. Okay, here, here you have a debtor who basically doesn't want to do anything. What's the county supposed to do to protect itself? Justice Alito noted that some cities impound cars when the owner has unpaid taxes or tickets, and if the amount due is not paid, the cars are sold. Would the city have to share the proceeds with the owner? Answer, yes. Justice Kagan, what if the property is abandoned? Lawyer Martin said the owner still could have a property interest. But if these appeared to be difficult questions, they were nothing compared to the increasingly overt hostility that faced lawyer Neil Katyal representing Hennepin County. He opened and spent a good deal of time trying to persuade the court that Mrs. Tyler had no legal standing to sue because at the time of the sale, she had no equity in the house. Under state law, the seizure automatically canceled her debts on the condo, debts totaling $59,000 in mortgage payments and condo fees. 
Katyal got nowhere with any of the justices, and when he referred to the Statute of Gloucester in 1278, Justice Gorsuch could contain himself no longer. Tyler was not a vassal owing fealty to her lord, but a modern-day fee-simple owner of real property. I just don't understand what on earth any of that history has to do with this case. Katyal repeatedly pointed the justices to the court's 1956 ruling upholding a law like Minnesota's, and that prompted this from Justice Kagan. My question is, are there any limits on that? Take a $5,000 tax debt and a $5 million house, and the state says, thanks, we'll keep it. That's nothing like this case, Katyal replied, noting that Tyler had affirmed in writing that she wanted nothing to do with the condo. That, he argued, constituted an abandonment of the property. But justices both conservative and liberal didn't seem to be buying the argument. Here, for instance, is the conservative Roberts. What's the point of the takings clause? I mean, that was something that was pretty important to the framers. Why did they put that in there? Justice Kavanaugh made a similar observation. Why would we read the Constitution to disfavor real property, though? That seems very counterintuitive. And liberal Justice Jackson noted that while 19 states may have laws like Minnesota's, the majority do not. Most states allow for some sort of a surplus or have some sort of mechanism to give uh, the money back to homeowners. So what is the big practical problem that we would face? If there are such problems, it appeared that the justices will worry about them later, not sooner. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Montana Republicans banned a transgender lawmaker today from attending or speaking at state House sessions for the rest of the year after she criticized anti-trans bills. Now, the punishment comes two days after a noisy protest in support of her at the Montana House of Representatives. Police in riot gear were called to clear protesters from the public gallery and seven were arrested. Montana Public Radio's Shaley Rager joins us now from Helena. Hi, Shaley. Hey, Elsa. Hey. Okay, so to be very clear here, we're talking about Democratic Representative Zoe Zephyr. What specifically led to this action against her? It all started last week when Representative Zephyr made a comment on a bill that would ban gender-affirming care for transgender youth. She said that when supporters of the bill bowed their heads to pray, she hoped that they would see blood on their hands, alluding to studies that show transgender people who get health care have lower rates of suicidality. Two days later, House Speaker Matt Regeer barred her from speaking in the chamber until she apologized. Representative Zephyr has refused to do so and wasn't allowed to participate in debate on the House floor for three days. Okay, so wait, the Republican majority in Montana's legislature voted to discipline Zephyr for the remarks that she made last week? Not quite. Although Republican lawmakers have broadly condemned her remarks, calling them accusatory, the discipline was for encouraging Montana. The discipline was for encouraging Monday's protest. Zephyr's supporters packed the House gallery and disrupted proceedings by shouting, let her speak. Zephyr, who was on the House floor, held her microphone over her head, attempting to amplify the shouts. And that's when the House Speaker called for the public to be removed from the chamber. And they called the police to restore order? 
That's what Speaker Aguirre said at the time. He's since called it a riot and said it put people in the building at risk. Here's how Representative Zephyr described the protest today, speaking in her own defense on the House floor. What my constituents in my community did is came here and said, that is our voice in this body. Let her speak. Let her speak. And when the speaker gaveled down the people demanding that democracy work, demanding that their representative be heard, when he gaveled down, what he was doing is driving a nail in the coffin of democracy. Zephyr's supporters, including Montana's Democratic Party, say the protest was a peaceful exercise of citizens' First Amendment rights and that the only violence came when police put protesters in handcuffs and took them out of the chamber. We should say no one involved needed any medical attention as a result of what happened. Okay, well, I understand that Montana House rules require a two-thirds vote to discipline a member, and it sounds like they did meet that threshold. What exactly is the punishment? Right. Republicans hold a supermajority and voted in unison in favor of the punishment. Representative Zephyr is now barred from participating in debates on the House floor for the remainder of the legislative session. She'll still be able to vote on bills remotely, but she can't join her colleagues on the floor or speak on legislation. As far as we know, no Montana legislator has faced punishment like this in at least decades. And real quick, how is Zephyr responding? She says it's undemocratic and that the House voted to take away the voices of her 11,000 constituents as lawmakers debate policy for the next seven days. Uh, the session is almost over and it's going to be a pretty consequential week. Uh, mm -hmm. Many of Zephyr's supporters have voiced outrage over her punishment and have promised further protests. That is Shaley Rager of Montana Public Radio. Thank you, Shaley. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Ten years since the Bangladesh uh, had the deadliest accident in the history of the garment industry, we take a look at what happened to safety, the safety of the industry in the decades since. That's coming up in the next 30 minutes on WBUR. It's 548. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAFCPAs, Accounting, Audit, Tax, Advisory, and Wealth Management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. Boston Bruins center Patrice Bergeron could make his playoff season debut tonight as the Bees play the Panthers at the Garden. Bergeron was injured nearly two weeks ago. The Bees say it'll be a game-time decision. If Boston wins tonight, they'll advance to the second round of the playoffs. The puck drops at 7 o'clock. Red Sox lost a matinee to Baltimore 6-2 to today. That gives the Orioles the series win. Boston's off tomorrow. Starts up a seven-game homestand at Fenway on Friday. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts Catering, full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings, Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, more than 6,000 students have left the Boston public schools in the last five years. The city and the district say it might be time to look at consolidating school buildings. Is that the right move for students and teachers? And if it is, can they do it equitably? That's Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Melissa Block. Say hello to Matika Wilbur. Oh, 
hello. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. She's a photographer based in Seattle. I'm from the Swinomish and Tulalip tribes here in Washington state. My Indian name is Satsaik. It means she who teaches. It's a fitting name. About 10 years ago, Wilbur set out to photograph members of all of the then 562 federally recognized Native American tribes in the U.S., So with Kickstarter backing, she spent the next decade traveling 600,000 miles on her quest. Here are just a few voices of those she met along the way. My name is Autumn Harry. I am a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe here in northern Nevada, and I am Paiute and Navajo. Hello, my name is Ethan, and my Unangach name is Kanglarich, and I am Unangach from Alaska. Hi everyone, this is Adrian Keen. I am a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and I come from California. Matika Wilbur's portraits of Native elders and kids, rappers, professors, artists, and activists, and her interviews with them are now published in a huge book titled Project 562, Changing the Way We See Native America. Wilbur calls her project narrative correction work, aimed at countering insipid and toxic stereotypes of Native Americans. When I was talking to folks, I was aiming to understand what are some of the true stories about your people that you want people to know? And also, you know, we talked about the effects of colonization and assimilation, termination, relocation, the experience of boarding schools, and then, of course, the best parts, how we've healed from that and what our people are doing to move forward and to develop healthy and strong and thriving Indigenous nations in their own community. Matika Wilbur's photographs are stunning. We see two world champion hoop dancers, their bright regalia popping against a threatening sky. A woman peering out impishly through her fingers, inked with traditional Inupiaq tattoos. And a comedy troupe, the 1491s, standing in profile in a line, we see just their dark silhouettes. The 1491s are these five really like hilarious and brilliant men, Bobby Wilson, uh, Ryan Redcorn, Sterling Harjo, Miggs, Miggsy Pensano, and Dallas Goldtooth. You know, in the image, Bobby is picking his nose and Sterling is uh, strangling Miggs and Ryan is tickling Sterling and Dallas wasn't there that day. (laughs) But, you know, I, I even love that like Bobby's braid is sticking straight up at the end. And the 1491s happened when the internet first happened. And honestly, for me, watching the 1491s put out content was so meaningful for me because there was not a lot of Native humor that was accessible to us. Our humor is so prevalent in our communities. You know, it's like, Joy goes hand in hand with justice. So if you come to one of our doings, there will be laughter and loud laughter. Yeah. I'm thinking about um, generational divides. And one of the things that an elder, Ralph Burns, said to you, um, he's been very active, I understand, trying to preserve Paiute culture. He said, sometimes I feel I should give up because kids seem not to really care which has got to be such a a daunting prospect for for people of his generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ralph Burns is a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe, where I photographed him in front of a rock formation known as Stone Mother in the photo. Uh, An incredibly important figure, the Diné people call her white shell woman, 
people from several different tribes throughout the territory, they make this pilgrimage to that place to honor the stone mother or white shell woman. And so for me, I felt really, really deeply honored to get to spend time with Ralph. And it, it did make me very sad to hear him talk about the difficulty of passing on his cultural traditions to young people and to his community. And I think it's a common thread throughout many different communities, not just Native peoples, you know, like elders saying these young people, you know. Yeah, kids these days. <laughs> kids yeah. these yeah. days, yeah. you know. And and I certainly can remember my grandma saying that about me, you know. So, and, and actually, you know what, when I look back on it, um, because Ralph has has gone on now to the spirit world. And so I feel a little I feel a little sad uh, right now in this moment talking about him and um I hope that that he was able to find somebody that would listen and, and I I um wish that I would have uh, been a better listener when my grandma was still alive. Mm. Well, you're Book, the project is dedicated to your young daughter, Alma B. And there's an image of her on the dedication page. She looks to be really young. She may be one in this photo. Can you can you describe the photo, what she's wearing, where she is? Mm-hmm. Before the book begins, there's the dedication page, and it says, For Alma B, may your children hear and breathe the words of our Indigenous ancestors. And may we all be so lucky to know an Indigenous future. And uh, Alma is standing in a place that's very significant to us on our traditional homelands here in Tulalip, but it's overlooking and pointing towards Skagit Bay with Swinomish in the background. And so, you know, I'm Swinomish and Tulalip, Alma is Swinomish and Tulalip. And so I wanted to take the photo somewhere where we represented both of our communities. She's uh, wearing a traditional cedar headband that my Auntie Judy made for her. She has on a ribbon skirt. She's wearing dentelium. She has on a little cookum, a little grandma scarf. Uh, but yeah, she's just so precious in that little photo. And when when you talk to her, I mean, she is very young, but when you talk to her about this project and what your your hopes are for her, what do you think she takes from that? Well, she's three at the moment, but you know, when I talk about an Indigenous future, I'm talking about imagining a new world, a modern world that celebrates and uplifts our indigenous intelligence. And what would it mean for our children to know our languages and to incorporate that into their everyday lives? What would it look like for my baby, for Alma B, if she was able to be raised with a pedagogy that our cultural traditions, our belief systems, our value systems are incorporated into each of the lesson plans, you know, how profound would that be? And, and hopefully, you know, Alma will, um, will not have to carry the same shame, you know, that my grandmother had to carry for being a native woman. And hopefully she'll never see signs that say no Indians or dogs allowed. Hopefully she won't feel that, um, those feelings that, uh, my grandmother felt that my mother felt and that even I felt, you know, like, what if she doesn't know that? What if she's free of that? And I have to believe that it's possible for her. I've been talking with Matika Wilbur. Her book of photographs and interviews is Project 562, Changing the Way We See Native America. Matika, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Tigritseed. Thank you, relatives, for letting me share with you today.
This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. From Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Should turn overcast overnight tonight, breezy down in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, mainly gray skies, the off chance of an afternoon shower, about 53 for a high. And for Friday, turning brighter, a little bit milder. It could break 60 degrees. Should stay in the mid to upper 50s over the weekend. 50 degrees now in the Boston area at 559. WBUR supporters include An Evening with Italian Tenor Andrea Bocelli, live at TD Garden on December 6th. Tickets available now at Ticketmaster.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In state capitals across the country, lawmakers are moving to limit the rights of transgender people by restricting gender-affirming health care. It is a, a very scary time to be a trans person. Coming up, different generations of trans people talk about the current political climate. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, gun safety advocates are applauding the new ban on assault-style weapons in Washington state. Unfortunately, in this environment, there's, there's no federal help coming in terms of regulating these deadly weapons, and so the responsibility falls to the states to do what they can. Ten states have now passed such laws, despite concern they may be unenforceable. And a former skydiver remembers the young pilot who saved his life. It's 6.01 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The House has passed a Republican-backed bill that would raise the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports after a round of 11th-hour negotiations, Speaker Kevin McCarthy was able to secure the votes he needed to narrowly pass the measure along party lines. In debate leading up to the vote, Democrats called attempts to attach the debt ceiling bill to cuts in government spending shameful noting that Republicans voted three times under the Trump administration to lift the borrowing limit with no conditions. Even so, Majority Leader Steve Scalise blasted only the current president for what he calls out-of-control spending. President Biden has maxed out the nation's credit card. That's what the debt ceiling is. That's what this debate is about. The bill now heads to the Senate, where Democrats have threatened to block it. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Writer E. Jean Carroll today told a jury panel how in 1996 she was raped by Donald Trump after accompanying him into a department store fitting room. 
NPR's Ilya Merritt reports Carol testified at length about the psychological injuries she said she suffered. Her voice broke as she recounted feeling stupid to have allowed it to happen, feeling that she walked right into this terrible situation. And uh, she said she's been berating herself for it ever since. She also said she's been unable to have a sexual or romantic relationship with a man at any point since then. Trump has denied the allegation, saying he was not in the store and does not even know her. Carol is suing under a New York law that allows such cases, even if the statute of limitations is expired. On the heels of a visit to Moscow by Chinese leader Xi Jinping, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he had a long and meaningful phone conversation with Xi. It marks the first known contact since Russia's invasion of Ukraine more than a year ago. In the call, Beijing promised to send a mediator to pursue a political settlement. Russia's foreign minister praised China's approach but continued its attacks against Ukraine. Walt Disney Company says its lawsuit against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and other officials will continue. NPR's Greg Allen reports Disney's charging DeSantis with orchestrating a campaign of government retaliation against the company. Governor DeSantis's feud with Disney began after the company's CEO publicly opposed a state law banning discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in the schools. DeSantis signed a law stripping Disney of its self-governing authority. But before that law took effect, Disney signed a deal with its outgoing board allowing it to retain development rights on the 40-square mile property. At a meeting near Orlando, DeSantis's new hand-picked board voted to invalidate that agreement. Moments later, Disney filed a 77-page lawsuit in federal court, charging DeSantis and other officials with violations of the contract's clause, due process, and the company's First Amendment right to protected speech. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts' highest court has issued a ruling that could affect tens of thousands of drunk driving cases. The Supreme Judicial Court found the cases were compromised by problems with a breathalyzer test. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports the ruling means people who are convicted can try to get their verdicts dismissed. The SJC ruled that because the State Office of Alcohol Testing concealed problems with the breathalyzer machine, an estimated 27,000 cases were based on faulty evidence. Criminal defense attorney Murat Erkan argued the case before the high court. We have a system in place where we have objective, courageous judges who are willing to sort of correct these wrongs when they occur. So um, it's a good day for justice in, in Massachusetts. The justices said Aircon's client can now seek to dismiss the charges against her. The ruling affects most breathalyzer testing done in Massachusetts between 2011 and 2019. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Some former emergency response officials in Boston testified today on the lessons of the Boston Marathon bombings 10 years ago. One-time members of the Boston Police, Emergency Medical Services, and the FBI appeared before a Senate subcommittee on Capitol Hill. WBR's Walter Wuthman has more. Officials told senators the marathon bombings launched a new era of collaboration between local and federal law enforcement agencies. As an example, former Boston EMS chief Richard Serino said the emergency response in Boston affected the response to the 2015 terror attacks in Paris. People from Paris actually said they learned from what they had read about what happened in Boston, and that helped save lives there. Then they came to Boston, and we learned from them and have shared that even more broadly, again, across multiple disciplines. So a lot of lessons learned. Serino said the COVID pandemic paused such collaborations, and he urged Congress to recommit to training and public safety grant programs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
The cost of flood damage to the MBTA caused by sea level rise has doubled in the past 15 years. That's according to a new study from MIT. Co-author Michael Martello says in the next seven years, the flooding risk to the system and the associated cost is expected to double again if nothing is done. Going from about $24 million uh, present day to about, I believe in our study, we're saying about $60 million of damage roughly by the end of the decade. And so that's how much damage we expect per year to the MBTA um, in the year 2030. The MBTA already has deployed uh, deployable flood barriers it can put in place to protect areas such as Aquarium Station near Boston Harbor. In the forecast, more clouds moving in tonight. Overnight lows in the mid-40s for tomorrow should be cloudy for the most part. Maybe a shower in the afternoon back in the mid-50s. Should see the sunshine move in on Friday with highs inching to about 60 degrees. 50 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families. Available at aecf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Alyssa Block in Washington. LGBTQ legal advocates were in court in Missouri today. They're suing to stop that state's new ban on transgender health care that would affect all ages. The ban, imposed by Missouri's attorney general, is set to take effect tomorrow. Missouri is one of more than a dozen Republican-led states that have enacted laws or policies to restrict gender-affirming care, such as puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones. We're going to hear now the perspective of trans people from different generations talking about this current political climate and their hopes or fears about the future. My name is Parker Andrews. I'm 16 years old. Parker is a high school sophomore in St. Louis, Missouri. He started his medical transition two years ago. Hi, I'm Caleb Popson Garcia. I'm from Tallahassee, Florida. Caleb is 21, about to graduate from Florida State. He started his transition at age 12. And Deborah Hopkins, she's 66, a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello, everyone. It's good to meet all of you. (laughs) Hopkins recalls that when she started her transition in the 1980s, it was a very different time. It really was. In fact, the Internet still was nowhere near what it is today in terms of resourceful information. And so I was actually traveling blindly for much of that time, Uh, started out taking illegal hormones out of Canada. We didn't know what kind of medication we were getting out of Canada, but we were so desperate to begin that transition. Um, You know, we were so young and naive. Caleb, let me turn to you there in Florida. You you started medically transitioning um, with puberty blockers when you were 12. When you listen to Deborah talk about how things were back in her day, how does that strike you? It's such a different time. Yeah, I mean, incredibly different. And I know the first thought I had was, I'm so relieved that we live in a more accepting world right now. We live in a world that I can go to a doctor who prescribes me safe hormones. I can go to a CVS or a Walgreens and I'll pick up safe hormones. And then the second thought that hit me was, is this going to be a reality eventually in the South that we'll need to go back to the way it was to black market in order to get hormones if they're being blocked by legislation? So I'm relieved that we are where we are right now, but a little worried that the past might become the future. Parker Andrews, uh, let me bring you in now there in Missouri. You're, you're 16. You're part of a 
trans generation that's highly visible, very vocal. Um, there's a higher percentage of your age group that identifies as non-binary or trans. Um, but at the same time, you're transitioning at a time when lots of states are passing laws or have policies that will ban gender-affirming care or otherwise limit trans rights, including there where you live in Missouri. How does all that affect you? It is a, a very scary time to be a trans person, especially just thinking about a lot of the ways that these bills are worded about protecting kids. But I often feel quite the opposite is true, especially when it comes to kids who are in the midst of transitioning, such as myself, because with centers being shut down and bills being passed that restrict or stop hormone replacement therapy entirely, as you were saying, where like people have to resort to hormones that aren't either safely administered, hormones where they're not entirely sure where they're from. Um, and then also there's just health risk with if you're unable to get any hormones at all, stopping hormones entirely without any medical intervention or oversight from a doctor that can also have adverse health effects. You know, as I listen to this generation and what's going on in government with bills that are out there, I'm concerned, I'm really, I'm angry actually, because I'm seeing them being pulled back into the time as I was growing up, and that's frightening. Caleb, you are about to graduate from Florida State, and I wonder, looking forward, if you see a place for yourself in Florida. Is Florida where you want to be, given the legislation in the state, given the political climate? Yeah, and that's a question that I think my answer changes every day, that mm -hmm. I only know Florida. I was born and raised in Florida. I wasn't planning on leaving the state when I graduated, and I've gone back and forth thinking that, yes, I'm going to leave. I'm going to move to a friendlier place, a place where I can, I know for a fact I'll continue to get health care that's covered by insurance. And then on the flip side, I want to stay and I want to keep fighting. And I have all of these great job connections for what I want to do with my degree. Um, and so in a perfect world where none of these bills were passing, I absolutely would stay in Florida. And I think I am still going to stay in Florida. But it is scary to think about. You know, it's hard not to feel as if there's a target on your back as a trans person in the state of Florida. Those who are opposed to gender-affirming care for transgender youth often make the argument that it's unsafe, that it's experimental. They might mention bone loss with puberty blockers or risks of permanent infertility with hormone replacement therapy. Uh, Parker, do you share any of those concerns about the long-term effects of the care that you're getting? Uh, for me, the biggest concern is balding. Uh, <laughs> but Same here. <laughs> outside of that, I would say that my care has been very regulated. I go in for routine blood work. I take supplements to make sure that my bones stay strong. I would say as far as things have gone, I've at least mental health-wise, I feel like I've even improved. I'm sure you've all heard a lot of the inflammatory and often really quite hateful language in these debates over transgender rights, which sometimes includes people essentially saying that trans people don't exist, that there are two sexes, 
that being trans is not an identity, it's an ideology. And I wonder how you shield yourself from vitriol like that, especially when it's framed as denying that trans people, that you, don't even exist. As a woman of color, I experience that quite often. And I've gotten used to the rhetoric that comes out of the conversations that so many of them have because it's been directed at us as people of color throughout the generations. And I've learned to just ignored a lot of that noise because that's what it is to me. It's noise. I ignore it. That's when I take my trip down to the beach or go up into the mountains and just exhale and let it go. Let it out. Caleb, what about you? Yeah, this is something I talked to my mom about after what Representative Webster Barnaby's comments um, in the Florida legislature. He called trans people demons, imps, mutants, compared us to X-Men mutants. Mm. And I was sitting in the room when he said that and I remember my first thought and my first action was I started laughing out loud, like legitimately laughing. And my thought was just, this man is so insecure. that He's placing all of his hatred towards a group of people that he does not even want to even attempt to understand. This is a very shallow man and a, just someone that I don't think even respects himself if he can't respect people different from him. And the people who are against us are a very loud, but a very small minority that most people are good. And I truly do believe that. As we wrap up here, Deborah, I wonder if you have words of advice from your perspective as a 66-year-old woman for your younger colleagues here, <laughs> Caleb and Parker, things you know now that you wish you had known when you transitioned. These two that I've listened to have just warmed my spirit in ways that I am so proud. I'm so proud of the both of you, how you continue to persevere and press forward in your knowledge and in your understanding, walking in your authenticity. Remain in those supportive communities that will be able to help strengthen you, help guide and protect. And because you have loving parents, supportive parents there, guys, I, I need to be a part of your family. <laughs> so you guys hang in there. Continue to do what you do and move forward because you all are going to move the needle to another level for the generation that's coming up behind you. Caleb, you've got about five years on Parker. What, what things would you like him to know? Uh, I mean, that transitioning is great. That... Every single year from when I was 16 to now, I've just become more and more comfortable and happy in my own identity and have just loved being able to become the man that I am today. The needle is always ticking towards the path of progress. It's not fair that we need to be the ones pushing it. It'd be great if that needle ticked on its own, but it doesn't. And it is an honor in some ways to be able to push that needle. You're doing a great job already at helping do that for the entire community, not just yourself. And that's huge to be doing at 16. And Parker, I'm going to give you the last word. Thank you both so much. The, I'm at a point now that I never thought I would get to. Younger me never thought that I was going to be able to transition or that I would find myself in such an accepting environment. And now that things are kind of cracking down, being able to 
see older queer people just being their true selves and living their lives and hearing just such words of encouragement, it really, it, it just, it makes me feel great and it makes me feel hopeful for my future. Well, Parker, Andrews, Caleb Hobson Garcia, Deborah Hopkins, thank you all so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Alyssa, thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on Marketplace this evening. An estimated 30 percent of school superintendents have quit in the last three years. We'll take a look at how districts are training new candidates to take on the job. Marketplace starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals with over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples. CambridgeNaturals.com. Today, the Dow and the S&P both lost territory. The Dow lost nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P was down about four-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq, though, came out on the winning side. It was up almost a half percent. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey wants to extend the state's life sciences initiative. She tells the Boston Business Journal she intends to file a third iteration of the multimillion-dollar spending bill that's aimed at spurring growth in the state's biopharma industry. The current version of the program expires this summer. Former Governor Deval Patrick launched the initiative in 2008 with a billion dollars for capital spending, tax incentives, and other programs. Healy is not yet ready to say how much money she wants to allocate in the legislation. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFS. Their active 360-degree approach combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com active360. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store. In the forecast, turning overcast overnight tonight should be breezy down in the mid-40s. For tomorrow, cloudy for the most part, could have some showers back in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Melissa Block. And I'm Elsa Chang. Rana Plaza was a pretty typical commercial building in Bangladesh. At eight stories tall, it housed five garment factories near the capital city of Dhaka. And in April 2013, it collapsed in a matter of minutes. More than 1,100 people died, sending shockwaves throughout the world and the fashion industry in particular. The Rana Plaza collapse is considered the deadliest accident in the modern history of the garment industry and one of the deadliest industrial accidents ever. Elizabeth Payton covers fashion for The New York Times. She wrote about the 10-year anniversary of the disaster and talked to several survivors. She joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Bangladesh, I mean, it's a major hub for the fashion industry. In recent decades, it's become one of the biggest exporters of garments in the world. Can you just start by telling us a little about 
what Rana Plaza was and the scale of the operation at the time. Well, as you touched on in your introduction, um, there are many, many buildings just like Rana Plaza all over Bangladesh. Bangladesh is the second largest garment exporter in the world after China. It's become a huge sourcing hub for all the household fashion brands that are in your local stores. So, you know, whether it's The Gap or it's Target, Walmart, Amazon, all of these brands source their low-priced clothes from Bangladesh. And so there were five factories that day powering out thousands of garments, T-shirts, sweatpants, uh, children's clothes that would later be shipped around the world. Well, after this devastating disaster, there were some reforms implemented throughout the fashion industry. Can you tell us about some of the most notable reforms and, and how much of a difference they actually made in the last 10 years? So before Rana Plaza, there were no or very little formal agreements between brands that sourced their clothing from the developing world um, and the clothing suppliers themselves that would guarantee the safety conditions that these clothes were made in. So Western brands didn't necessarily have to take a responsibility in the state of the environment that their clothes were being made. Mm-hmm. I think the degree of public outrage and horror um, at the number of people who were killed or injured really forced a lot of brands to think about the way that they had been doing business in these countries. Um, so the same year of the collapse, 2013, There were two agreements um, that were signed between brands, uh, worker unions and factory owners. And what this did was created a framework by which brands would have to play a role in the fire and safety conditions that were in place in those factories. Would you say that these kinds of agreements have substantially, visibly improved conditions in garment factories over the last decade? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that nobody would dispute that there's been huge progress made in the safety of workers in these factories from a fire perspective and a building safety perspective. But I think it's also important to remind listeners that there are still major issues, things like low wages, harassment in the workplace, union busting. These remain major issues for workers, both in Bangladesh and in other countries in the world. Well, I know that you have spoken with several survivors of the Rana Plaza collapse. What did you hear from them? How are their lives right now? The survivors of Rana Plaza have the most tragic stories to tell. The vast majority of these workers were women. Um, And beyond the obvious traumatic nature of their physical injuries, many of them, I think up to half, have never been able to work since or earn an independent income. Some of the women that I spoke to last week as part of my reporting talked about the fact that they had been abandoned by their husbands or that their families saw them as a financial burden because they could no longer work anymore. Lots of them spoke about the fact they still, 10 years on, have terrible nightmares or or sleeping pill addictions that really hamper their everyday life. And there has been some efforts to compensate workers, um, both through charitable initiatives or by the Bangladeshi government. But the, the amount of money that most of them had been offered is very, very little. Um, And the average wage in Bangladesh remains around $75 a month. So many of them are not just haunted by what happened to them 10 years ago. They still have huge fears about what the future holds for them. That is Elizabeth Payton of The New York Times. Thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you.
Elsewhere in today's program, I'll speak with someone who's been an economic advisor to two different presidents and once again works for the White House, meaning he's seen this current fight over the debt ceiling before. We'll hear from Gene Sperling. But first, it's time now for My Unsung Hero. It's our series from the team at Hidden Brain, which tells stories about people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Alan Ayers. My unsung hero involves an incident that happened over 50 years ago. In 1970, I was participating in a skydiving jump meet in Gainesville, Florida, and uh, we had a team competition. And for the team competition, myself and two others were jumping out of a Cessna 172. And for the jump meet, they had removed the passenger door and the front passenger seat. But unfortunately, the seatbelt remained and was still buckled. And as I left the plane, I tripped over the seatbelt and fell out the door with the seatbelt looped around my ankle. I was completely out of the plane, on my back, staring up at the belly of the Cessna with only my boot visible to the pilot, who was the only person left in the plane. I tried to pull myself up to reach the buckle, but I just couldn't. I was pretty much helpless and totally out of options. And what happened next was incredible. The 23-year-old pilot unbuckled her seatbelt, crouched down in the door of an airplane with both hands off the yoke and freed my ankle. I tumbled away and safely opened my chute. And to this day, I can see her two young hands reaching out of the door to unbuckle the belt. When I landed in the confusion after I got down, I wasn't able to find her to thank her. I owe my life to this person and will always think of her as one of the bravest people imaginable. Alan Ayers lives in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He says this incident taught him a lot about remaining calm in dangerous situations. He no longer skydives, but he still likes to spend time in the air hang gliding. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Boston Bruins captain Patrice Bergeron could make his playoff season debut tonight as the Bees play the Panthers at the Garden. Bergeron was injured nearly two weeks ago. If Boston wins tonight, they'll advance to the second round of the playoffs. The puck drops in 30 minutes. Red Sox are heading back home after they lost this afternoon to Baltimore 6-2. On Friday, they start a seven-game homestand. First up, the Cleveland Guardians. This is 90.9 WBUR Clouds tonight. More clouds tomorrow. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C.